0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
1: And I'm Ryan Cooper. Welcoming back to the podcast, um, assistant professor Marshall Steinbaum, uh, who uh, teaches economics at the University of Utah, um, the best state in America as far as I'm concerned, my birthplace. And um, he's here to talk to us about uh, socialism versus antitrust. So Welcome.
2: Thanks. It's great it's great to be back on the podcast, one of my favorites.
0: <laughs> it's been too long, my friend. It's been too long. We're so glad to have you.
1: Um yeah, so uh maybe just a little bit of background, you know, for this discussion um from my own sort of personal vantage point, you know, I'm um I've been a sort of uh observer of the like brandeis school of antitrust for a number of years now and um also you know kind of follower of what you might call democratic socialism and it seems as if um you know the the those sort of factions of people are often um they're fighting like cats in a sack to (laughs) not put to uh find a point on it um but I also, you know, my general sense is that they do not necessarily trade off and in fact can be quite complementary in many ways. And Marshall, you've you've sent us a number of papers here which kind of confirm that um approach and uh in in, in many ways and since it was what I already believed, I'm glad to see that it must be true.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad to have a soapbox on which to propound the uh, grand unification theory of uh, left economic philosophy. <laughs> um, and, and I think we can date the uh, next entire epoch of uh, left thinking from the airing of this podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. The the great Steinbaum left anchor synthesis, um, but yeah. So to get us started, one one area that um, I think that that the antitrust folks are kind of rightly criticized for overlooking a bit is you know the role of workers. But you know you you have a couple of publications here that. Explicitly talk about how the you know the the overthrow of the antitrust state you know from like the 1930s you know that existed through like the mid 1970s has actually harmed workers in in concrete ways. So, um, could you could you get into that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think it's helpful to sort of frame things in uh, terms of what I would be arguing against in this context. Uh, th- basically, the idea that. Uh, an anti monopolist perspective uh, that's supportive of robust entrust, enforcement of the antitrust laws, um, as was the case between the late 1930s and the mid 1970s, um, is at odds with a pro worker agenda. So the argument tends to hinge on things like. Uh, You know, big corporations and oligopolized industries are where uh, the New Deal was at its height in terms of uh, protecting the welfare of workers. Um, And those things are the negation of a robust antitrust policy, which would seek to. uh, mandate competition between those oligopolized firms, break them up potentially, and otherwise make it hard for firms to earn profits, which they might then share with uh, unionized workers. So that's the broad context in which I that with which I would take issue. In particular, what you're referring to as the uh, sense in which robust antitrust enforcement was beneficial to workers and when it was in force, and then. Consequently, the uh, uh, rescinding of the uh, New Deal antitrust enforcement uh, regime uh, starting in the late 1970s uh, uh, was greatly harmful to workers' interests, really hinges on the question of vertical restraints, as they're called, within um, antitrust. So this is, you know, vertical refers to Tiers in a supply chain, you might say. So, for example, suppliers selling something to uh, distributors, like manufacturers versus retail. Um, as we'll see in the case of uh, the antitrust jurisprudence that's, that that I argue had a great uh, importance for workers, um, the context in many of these cases was basically dominant uh, oil refiners who who you know refined gasoline for for consumption buy automobiles, then uh, distributed it through service stations. So think about you know your, your retail gas station that has the sign on it from uh, some big oil company, oil refiner, um, and then the question is basically in these antitrust cases, to what degree can that big oil refiner whose sign is over the service station control the ways in which the uh, uh, proprietors of the service stations uh, are allowed to uh, operate? Namely, can they solely source their gasoline from that one refiner? What else are they allowed to sell? There? Are they allowed to sell goods that come from other supply contracts, like auto parts, for example, versus the ones that come just from the contracts negotiated by the supplier? Um, that... That relationship between uh, the sort of subservient um, uh, independent business uh, in a retail s- or a, a, a distributor or like a manufacturer distributor supply chain the relationship between the subsidiary uh, distributors or retailers and the dominant manufacturer was the subject of major uh, antitrust cases and uh, Though that that type of jurisprudence about what powerful companies were allowed to tell less powerful companies what to do um, is what went away starting in the late 1970s, and I I argue that exact jurisprudence of vertical restraints is what's now being used to uh, immiserate, uh workers, especially in the gig economy.
1: I gotcha. So, <clears throat> so can you like draw out the example explicitly here? You know, so so like you start with like a certain you know legal logic of what you know certain companies are allowed to do and then now you have you know the like what i'm assuming uber lyft instacart these type of companies and they they are uh, exploiting that that sort of precedent to treat their workers like garbage right
2: yeah i think so A lot of attention is rightly focused on this question of whether gig economy workers are legally employees Um, so that is at issue right now with this AB 5 legislation in California that uh, uh, Mandated a particular test for employment for legal employment status. That's unfriendly to um, the gig economy uh, platform firms uh, because it Is likely to result in those workers for those firms being ruled to be legally uh, employees which means that the companies have to um, essentially give them better benefits and and, uh, uh, you know pay them minimum wage you uh, abide by hours laws uh, include them in company health insurance all of the things that legal employees get that heretofore gig economy workers have not gotten um, you know that hinges on this question of the legal status of employment the antitrust aspect of this is essentially the flip side of this so in those cases I was describing about uh, uh, oil refiners and retailers. Um, Basically, what was at issue was that these retailers, the service stations, were considered not to be employees. So the the courts ruled explicitly, or they said in their rulings, um, these Uh, uh, are, quote, independent businessmen or independent contractors. And what that means is that it's illegal to force them to do what you want um, under the antitrust laws. So the logic of those rulings is if these were your employees, then you could tell them what to do. But of course, then you would have to pay into their social security and um, treat them, Uh, in the ways that you treat workers, that is they're entitled to the rights of workers in exchange for uh, the economic uh, ability to tell them what to do on a day-to-day basis, if they're not legally employees, then they cannot be told what to do. That's the logic of the antitrust cases, and that's the logic that could be or would have been applied to the gig economy workers in a previous era. So this is why I say that the gig economy business model hinges on this Absence of antitrust liability pertaining to um, the wielding of economic power over the boundary of the firm. So here you've got, you know, Uber is saying, "Well, these drivers are independent contractors. It's up to them when they work. It's up to them uh, what uh, route they take." In theory, although that's not actually true, um, you know, they're all that all Uber is doing is basically facilitating a matching of. Uh, Drivers to riders. It's a neutral platform. These are bilateral transactions of which uber is a third party Um, Therefore the drivers are not employees. Well, okay uh, But under the antitrust uh precedents that were in force between the, I mean, these cases I'm referring to are from the 40s and and early 50s as extending into the 60s, um, uh, then they would not have been able to exercise nearly the degree of control that basically makes their business model viable in which they boast about in other contexts. Um, So that's why I argue that this sort of non-employment uh, non-legal employment status of many workers in the gig economy really hinges not just on the non-enforcement of labor law such that they are excluded from the protections due to legal employees, but also the non-enforcement of antitrust law insofar as um, they can be subjected to vertical restraints due to the uh, eroded logic of uh, an antitrust enforcement that says that doing that is uh, you know, economically efficient or whatever justifications have been used.
0: Now let me ask Marshall because it it seems um seems worth diving more deeply at some point into all the ways in which workers are harmed by uh, you know monopoly and monopsony, and and why antitrust solutions and and kind of fixing the way that enforcement and practices are, are operating now is is a priority for the left. Um, but to go back to what you're arguing against, I want to um, see if you could tell us like the best form of the argument on the other side that that you're arguing against, because the the review of Matt Stoller's book Goliath that you sent us by by Gabe Winant, uh seems to be focusing slightly differently. Um, You know, it's not so much rejecting the idea that workers are harmed, right, by monopoly and monopsony, uh, so much as it's saying that antitrust focuses, uh, you know, almost exclusively, it seems like, or at least Stoller's story and narrative and argument, uh, exclusively on like capital versus capital and market power, uh, to the exclusion of, um, you know, capital versus labor. And and, and clearly, I think he would agree that um, monopoly and problems that you've pointed out already, do redound to the detriment of workers in a number of ways. But I think his argument is that um, you're you're missing – so many class capital problems if you think that's the whole story right so what what do you think the best form of that other argument is i don't know if he represents it but but what would you say um you know you're arguing against that's that's uh you know more aligned with what he's saying
2: yeah i think that finance uh review uh is as good a representation of the view that i would argue against as there is i think he had a good foil in stoller's book because i uh, I don't think it's a very good book, frankly, and I think that <laughs> Wynant is right in the ways that uh, uh, Stoller like, radically overinterprets the significance of the anti-monopoly movement in American history, sort of ties this big... Um, story together that supposedly Explains everything and as I think Wynant says yes. at one point it's a, a More a conspiracy theory than a like historical Interpretation um, you know and Wynant Is a very very good historian so it was Kind of I mean I had to say this like shooting fish In a barrel from his perspective yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> On the other hand I d- there are very significant Things in the Winant review that I would take issue with So I'm hoping that we can uh, achieve The synthesis Great. we referred to uh, Earlier uh, uh, on, on what I would consider to be more um, uh, Factual grounds um, so I didn't agree with exactly the the uh, line that you're referring to. That is that antitrust concerns uh, kind of conflict within capital, capital versus capital. Whereas um, socialism or labor politics, if you want to call it, you know, if you don't want to uh, even get so specific as socialism, concerns the uh, class uh, antagonism between capital and labor. Um, and I just I don't think that works as a America as a as an interpretation of the role of anti-monopolism in American history nor do I think it really works in like um, interpretive uh, uh, Terms vis-a-vis where we are today in politics or economics. So I don't think it works. So let me just sort of Speak briefly about history and then kind of get to where I think it goes wrong in terms of how how do we understand these things now? Um you know the so so there was an anti-monopolist movement in American history as a social movement. It really uh, it existed throughout the 19th century. I think it's fair to say, but really kind of came to the fore and had a, its decisive influence on politics um, in the uh, post-Civil War era, especially after the uh, Panic of 1872. Um, or 1873, excuse me, is the, I think that is the correct date. So the anti-monopolist movement in American history was very real and it was a very much a labor movement, I think. So there were, you know, big time actions protesting corporate control uh, over the U.S. economy in ways that were threatening to uh, workers and what we would call now small business people or independent proprietors. um, And... So, I mean, and a sort of like labor anti-monopolist coalition was the main like source of left politics in the 19th century in the United States. So I think I, what I interpret Wynant as saying is a little bit revisionist um, in that, you know, that – That idea that, like, an anti-monopolist movement is not a workers' movement kind of presupposes the development of the working class towards this proletarianized, like, wage-labor system where there's no sense that there's independent um, uh, property ownership or, like, uh, 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 participation in a market economy. It's just you're told every day what to do by your boss and you get some wages in return for that. They're low and the boss can expose you to industry, industry, injury and whatever. You know, it's a horrible um, uh, experience. And then you have capital labor conflict within the context of that capitalist work environment and, and uh, workplace. I think that it, it's anachronistic to protect back back onto the 19th century and say that um, Uh, You know, anti-monopolism was a movement of like small property owners, which is not a movement of the working class. I don't think that contemporaries would have interpreted it that way. Um, I also don't think it works as I I don't think this dichotomy between like capital labor conflict equals uh, labor policy, socialism and capital capital conflict maps to antitrust and anti-monopolism. Exactly for what I was saying about the gig economy. I think everyone who works in labor-adjacent circles is, like, well aware that a capital-labor conflict is what is that issue. For example, with California's AB5 legislation, the larger question of whether uh, gig economy workers are legally employed versus legally independent contractors, it's kind of a binary position – as currently constructed, because you've got, you know, workers and worker advocates say, well, they should be employees because that entitles them to greater benefits. And the platforms and companies and the economists that they've bought to lobby on their behalf all say, oh, well, they're um, uh, independent contractors, and that means that they get paid less. My view is that the antitrust, anti-monopolist take on this it basically ta- needs to take account of the role of autonomy like economic autonomy that plays into the standing of workers. So, um, for example, you know, the set in, in California right now over this AB five legislation, this question of whether, uh, independent contractors are legally employees or not, or can be made in, uh, legally employees. Um, you know, everybody and their brother in terms of employers is trying to exempt themselves from that legislation because they all, like recognize that uh, it means that they would have to pay more. Um, so among everybody and their brother is um, the 7-Eleven like, corporation, so the the sort of parent franchisor corporation of all the 7-Eleven stores, they're like, oh, exempt franchising from this law because um, we shouldn't be subject, you know, franchises are not employees, we should not um, have to uh, make our franchisees employees or we shouldn't be threatened with that. In response to that attempt to exempt franchising by franchisors, the 7-Eleven franchisees have said, no, 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 no. We don't want to be exempt from this law. We are independent businessmen. You're Right now, we are litigating against you because you're telling us what to do. You exert such great control over our businesses, and that's detrimental to our profits. We want to be covered by AB5, because what that means is that we can threaten you, the franchisor, with a Establishing employment status for ourselves and make you pay through the nose for the fact that you tell us what to do, whereas now you get to tell us what to do without paying for it. Um, and I think that really underlines the the extent to which there's an autonomy aspect to this question of um, employment that also comes into play in antitrust. So if so, you know, the way I would envision sort of pursuing this question of how to regulate the gig economy isn't just that. Uh, gig economy workers should be employees, although they should. But also, that gig economy employers should be subject to antitrust liability if they don't treat their workers as employees, because they're telling those employees what to do in contravention of the Sherman Act and uh, uh, you know state legislation as well. In some cases, you know, telling people what to do who are not your employees is illegal or should be illegal. And that I think is important to bring to the fore and to recognize that there is definitely a capital labor conflict um, that is a component of the sort of anti-monopolist agenda that, that we uh, have propounded.
1: No, that's, that's interesting. So it's, so it's somewhat more complicated than I was really understanding here because there's, there's sort of two ways you can go if, if you're Uber, you know, and, and you actually, you know, if, if you really wanted to uh you know obey the the letter of the law re- regarding you know independent contractors antitrust and so on it's like either you can have em- employees or you can have actual independent contractors and they you know can sort of like do whatever they want in the context of like the you know doing a drive for uber but of course that would just completely destroy Uber's business model because like the entire thing i think as you, as you've been saying here like it just depends it's like a heads i win tails you lose reading of the the whole labor law and antitrust law it's that like everything is interpreted in the favor of the big corporation um in in, in terms of like how it's regulated Yeah, exactly. I
2: mean, I mean, Uber depends crucially on it being the thing that determines which driver gets a fare and matches to which customer and where they go and what price is charged. All of those things could be interpreted as violations of antitrust law under a more uh, robust vertical restraints jurisprudence that uh, used to be enforced. Um, And that is necessary. I mean, that needs to be part of the mix with which. Uh, the labor market is regulated. That is, it. I mean, I guess to to widen it out a little bit, just from the gig economy, you know, this whole older jurisprudence of antitrust dating from the '30s to the late '70s is like, in some ways, you know, people working now in like labor spheres, uh, you know, have no institutional memory of what, of that as being a thing. Um, and so there's just all these battles over employment status versus independent contractor status and independent contractor status is interpreted as like bad for workers and employment status is interpreted as good. And so we want that for as many people as possible. And that's a reasonable position to take, but the idea that antitrust is your friend in that Anytime you find a worker who's been categorized as an independent contractor, that's a potential source of antitrust liability for the boss is like an enormously powerful weapon that I don't think uh, contemporary worker advocates have really fully understood yet. And consequently, the kind of anti-monopolist agenda that's been um, uh, put forward by a number of organizations at this point has yet to be sort of fully embraced by uh, worker advocates, even though it offers them something quite – quite profound
1: yeah and so i it's like either uber is a massive labor law violation or it's a massive illegal price fixing conspiracy and a huge violation of antitrust laws yep and and you and you see that like if it weren't for that they uh they would not exist as a company it it would by the way. You're an economist. You may have some special insight into this. How the fuck is Uber still in business? Like, by my count, they've lost about twenty-eight billion (laughs) dollars. Oh,
2: oh, I mean, in the sense, in the sense that they've never actually made money. Uh, In the accounting, yeah, yeah. No, so that's that's a great question. Um, I mean, basically, they're they have a sugar daddy, which is uh, the the financial. behemoth SoftBank, a japanese firm and that is itself that SoftBank itself has a sugar daddy which is uh the saudi royal family basically so the all of silicon valley should be understood as money laundering by the saudi royal family of its oil <laughs> revenue no i'm serious i mean you're laughing at this bad, yeah, it's yeah yeah did, um i did, uh, did uber know. do
0: 911 what's going on <laughs> <laughs> uh interesting we could
2: scratch our chins a little bit about that um i allegedly sorry uh, <laughs> um, no, so so you know, there's sort of this ca- cash slosh- sloshing around. The uh, you know the real backers kind of want a way, like the same way that you know Chinese billionaires try to offshore their wealth because they're afraid of um, you know regulation or, or uh, corruption prosecutions or whatever. Um, you know, the Middle Eastern billionaire class is also you know looking to kind of you know clean up their their act, I mean, not, not clean up their act, that's the wrong uh, metaphor, to uh, to money launder, so clean up their money, um, uh, by looking for alternative investment op- options and, you know, a kind of monopoly play. So, so, you know, that makes it sound like, oh, you know, this is just like, um, you know, uh, some play money is not really motivated by profits. I think that's not right. So one thing uh, that has been very clear in the sort of new scholarship on antitrust is exactly the ways in which our antitrust policies invite the following business model, which is subsidize some uh, new gadget, some you know new new app or platform or whatever. Um, to achieve, uh, you know, basically monopolistic market share among consumers, Um, so they think they're getting something very convenient for free or near free, um, and then turn around and squeeze everyone upstream that actually provides the service. So you insert yourself in between the people who actually do the thing and the consumers who want the thing, Um, you charge the consumers a low price or or zero price, um, and then you suck out all of the revenue that had been going to the people who actually do the thing. So that's what you see with Facebook and journalism, um, and, you know, basically the entire internet and Google. And Facebook, you know, every other like source of revenue has been just uh, you know redirected to those two um, behemoths. I mean, that's what and said. Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, how many Amazon, years? Right. Right. And in terms of Amazon and physical goods and, and retail, um, you know, when I say that that you know contemporary antitrust scholarship has shown that this is the play that contemporary antitrust policy invites. I'm speaking specifically of Lena Khan's excellent paper, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. Um, That talks about that exact thing in detail with respect to one company. But I think what we can say now is that it's true of pretty much all of these companies. And it's true of Uber, uh, you know, vis-a-vis basically the taxi market um, and uh, uh, transportation on demand, uh, you know, by a GPS enabled dispatching. um, You know, they basically come into a market, they what it what it appears to consumers is that there's this app on your phone that charges a more con, that's a more convenient taxi service charging half price um, than the incumbents. Um, you know you sign you download the app you know get used to using it and then Uber tells you like oh you know bad big bad Bill De Blasio or whatever is trying to put us out of business you know tell him that you like Uber or whatever and so that generates a, a con- uh, constituency in favor of whatever regulatory carve outs on transportation regulations on labor on antitrust whatever that these companies basically need to survive um, so the idea that the sort of monopolistic play is you know pour in billions in Saudi oil money to subsidize a uh, universal take up and then you know kind of use that universal, you know, kind of monopoly market share among consumers to sort of jawbone the political system into uh, re-engineering the policy landscape so as to make this business model legal and enable it to put out of business everybody who operated under the old business models, like namely treating uh, treating workers as employees, following uh, safety laws, that sort of thing. Um, You know, so it's not crazy to imagine that, like, after pouring in, you know, Dozens of billions of dollars. Eventually, you would hit a big hay- payday. You know that hasn't happened with Uber yet, um, and it sort of doesn't look like it's going to. I mean, their whole thing and what everyone believes about them is like, oh, they're just waiting for the day of um, self-driving cars. You know, and that will put all the drivers out of business, obviously, and also, you know, make it profitable. I mean, the technology for that has been pretty well shown to not ever, you know, it's not going to work, you know, in any reasonable time frame. I don't think. I don't think you need the self-driving cars to necessarily make it the case that that business model would work. I think if every, if, if they are were successful bullying absolutely every public official in America, um, you know, they could probably make it work. It just doesn't look like that's the way it's going, given what's happening in California.
0: And meanwhile, the Saudis are also flooding money into the think tanks to probably prop up the, the, the policy, you know, kind of arena as favoring the kind of interpretation of antitrust law to help support Companies like Uber, right? Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, you know, there's been plenty of ink spilled both about the influence that these, uh, you know, foreign powers exert over our uh, foreign policy by virtue of their, uh, you know, the ease with which they can buy their way into what uh, Obama called the blob. Um, I think we also need to pay attention to the ease with which foreign powers can manipulate our economic policies exactly through um, you know this kind of influence peddling. On the other hand, I don't want to say like oh it's the baddies overseas who are doing this to us. Right. I mean, there's Plenty right. of economists who are happy to take their money and tell uh, uh, you know public. A- agencies as their consultants that like, Oh no, you know, Amazon's not breaking the law. Uber's not breaking the law. As I can tell you based on my economic theory, when, you know, in fact they've just, you know, come up with something that enables them to send in their, um, you know, hourly, uh, or their, 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 um, invoice for their hourly, uh, <laughs> yeah. Tourist. I
0: mean, hopefully we'll get to the Biden administration and, and how they might be facilitating problematic, uh, policies from advisors, not too different from that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, <clears throat> So maybe to 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 wrap up uh the 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 Uber thing here um it's it seems like one of the the aspects of this sort of discussion that the socialist left can kind of miss about this is is just the extent to which like government itself kind of shifts to you know the private boardroom under you know a re- re- regime of Uh, you know, when, when you have just tons of monopolies and, and like the regulatory state has just become totally sidelined in that, that I think is, is best illustrated with uh, regarding Uber. There's a, a, a part in the book, super pumped by Mike Isaac. That um, is very, very good book. I I highly recommend it. Very readable and very uh, illustrative. Um, And at one point he talks about how uber uh just just contemptuously violated the laws on in, in numerous cities about like taxi regulations you know it's like if you're running a taxi you got to do xyz this is the law and like they had a they had like um tools to determine whether uh a you know, city regulators, some representative of the Democratic government was going to try to get a taxi, an Uber, and, um, you know, nail them for violating the law, and then it would give them fake taxis that would never show up. Um But then at another point, they broke the rules on the Apple App Store, and that almost destroyed the company. Um The, the, the CEO of Uber, Tra- Travis Kalanick, whatever, at the time, he had to go... To, you know the apple like dragon lair wherever it is with lava pouring down and shit and and go and basically beg for forgiveness on bended knee to uh tim cook because you know because it was like the, if if apple said you violated our terms of service we're turning you off that's it they're done That's the end of their company and like literally violating hundreds of laws in a giant conspiracy that is done completely, you know, like a, I mean, federal state, I'm sure it was, you could do like a sort of mafia racketeering thing too on it made no difference to him. Nobody ever even got busted for it. It was like a two day story when this was discovered a couple of years ago. And so like, like, uh, to, to have a capitalist or any sort of business marketplace, like the state has to be involved and and the state has to like set the rules of the road. And if there is no rule, the rules of the road are not there, then you just get this termitic infestation of corruption and lawbreaking that, that it's not like Marx said in the communist manifesto, they said, Oh, the state is just like a uh you know committee for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie or whatever and and it's like no the the state just complete like governance just moves away from the state like it doesn't even matter anymore and that is terrible you know for for workers for democratic citizens you know whoever you want
0: uh, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of what you were
2: saying. I, te- I definitely agree with that. I guess I would push back a little bit on the kind of interpretation of the states moving away. And so, like, the only thing that matters is what t- whether Tim Cook allows Uber to make a living, um, as opposed to whether, you know, the taxi authorities of every city and their state labor Departments and the FTC FTC have a say on it. Like they're they're, you know, small comp- Potatoes in comparison to the CEO of some company um, I think I mean that's true about you know, who wields power in the economy But it's not right to say that that's because the state has retreated and sort of ceded all control to um, uh, To the capitalist I think we have to understand the state's involvement or policies involvement as being um You know kind of inescapable So the question is like okay so you've got You know like uh, uh, Incorporation statutes like who's allowed To be a company to enjoy limited liability Or whatever like people don't think of that as being part of economic policy but it absolutely is um not just you know is apple allowed to be a corporation or not a corporation as it as you know say it's a a, a california corporation i mean it's probably a delaware corporation but whatever you know can it operate across state lines you know these were big issues in the 19th century nowadays we get things like oh if you're a corporation then basically anything you want to do um is legal under the antitrust laws you know, but people who are not corporations cannot act together under the antitrust law. So, for example, you know, we were talking about like, oh, Uber could be Liable under antitrust for this gigantic price fixing conspiracy um, uh, through uh, executed through vertical states. Yes, you know who has actually been found to be uh, liable under the antitrust laws: Uber drivers uh, for potentially collectively bargaining their wages against Uber. Um, so that so this idea that like oh you know these individual drivers like they're independent businesses um, operating on this neutral platform, uh, but they can't get together. That's what the antitrust laws forbid. Um, whereas this one gigantic corporation. That Dominates them, that is absolutely allowed to do whatever it wants. Um, so, this is the kind of concept that my, my colleague and uh, uh, collaborator, Cedric DePaul, has called the allo- or antitrust as allocator of coordination rights, and the title of her paper. This idea is like, who's allowed to coordinate economic activity? Is it, it and what she says is that antitrust has what's called the firm exemption. Um, so, here she's Drawing on the what what you know, most, every antitrust person recognizes and is known in the jurisprudence as the labor exemption, which is that labor unions bargaining wages within a recognized bargaining framework cannot violate the antitrust law through that collective bargaining. So that the idea is that's an exemption to antitrust usual um, uh, preference for competition. Um, what she says is, you know, we have to reinterpret that as being. Uh, as, as there being a firm exemption to antitrust, which is Uber telling everybody what to do, that has an exemption from antitrust law by virtue of the fact that Uber is a corporation, and the way that we have chosen to allocate coordination rights in her framework is to allow Uber to coordinate entire markets. In the case of Apple, to allow Apple to determine what is presented on its uh, on its App Store, and you know it has uh, you know pretty um, you know uh, strong representation in the uh, retail smartphone market, so. It's like, okay, you know, Uber's probably going for a relatively upscale clientele. They all have iPhones. If it can't get on the I, if it can't get on the app store, it can't get on the iPhone. And if it can't get on the iPhone, they have no business. You know, that is the allocation of coordination rights over that market to Apple, um, as, a, as opposed to some other uh, mechanism for allocating coordination rights. And this is where, you know, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, anti-monopolist framework would say, you know, there's no reason why Apple gets to be the one who decides who sees what. Why don't we potentially, you know, in a kind of co-op context, give give that right to, you know, a consortium or, you know, quote unquote, union of app developers, or in the case of, uh, say, ride sharing, like, why don't we have a uh, union of taxi drivers, and they determine, um, you know, who gets, who, who gets matched with which customer and what the fare is, as opposed to uh, the company determining that.
0: This is so important, and I think it's really worth emphasizing, uh, you know, the point about, how jurisprudence and and antitrust enforcement um, does what you said in so far as it it, it – it chooses sides and who can coordinate these things and who's autonomous and who has power uh, and since we're speaking of Apple, maybe you can talk a bit about how sanitation workers right at in kodak at Kodak back in the eighties had more power to coordinate and 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 kind of uh, exert their their power over um, sanitation workers at Apple right in contemporary times and, and and then you write about how that is kind of an example of um, you know how the separation of workers from lead firms um, is kind of the simultaneous erosion of the in the jurisprudence of the Sherman Act prohibitions on vertical restraints. So, um, yeah, maybe talk even a bit more about about the importance of this.
2: Yeah, so that's getting to what uh, 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 great economist David Weil has called the fissured workplace. Um, and I think you're referring specifically to an article that was published, I think, by Neil Irwin, if I recall correctly, in the New York Times a couple of years ago that was pro- yep. uh, profiling two specific – um, people, one of whom had been a kind of janitorial worker on payroll at Kodak in the early 80s. And like she had basically benefited from their, uh, you know, corporate policies that uh, included incentives to like go to community college and get uh, credentials. And so she got qualified as um, a, a, you know, sort of IT person. She was like trained on Lotus 123 or something from the, you know, from the dim, dark uh, history of. Uh, personal computing, Um, you know, and like she kind of worked her way up through the ranks at Kodak Thanks to the fact that she started in the ranks of Kodak That is that she was a janitorial worker on the payroll, you know She was able to be promoted basically to the point of being um, The head of IT for the entire company at some at, at one point So she was a senior executive, you know in that kind of social mobility Via the mechanism of a major economy leading firm that employs people kind of at every um Stratum of the uh, occupational Hierarchy of the income hierarchy And is itself a like Somewhat egalitarian organization In its own right I mean insofar as any corporation Could be egalitarian within Capitalism you know I think this is kind of What Winant was talking about when he referred To um, you know the sort of New Deal State um, that was uh, uh, Created by uh, the National Labor Relations Act and other other, uh, You know kind of New Deal reforms it's like That that kind of somewhat egalitarian corporate organization is you know a thing of the past and my argument would be well it's it's the erosion of antitrust that made that not the case so in the instance of Apple, the the, contra- the contrasting individual was, um, you know, a, a, a janitorial services worker who was contracted. So she was employed by some, you know, janitorial services contractor whom Apple contracted with to clean its offices. But like, there's no way that she's ever going to be promoted to be uh, an employee of Apple, let alone a senior executive at Apple. You know, nowadays, Apple is one of the economy's leading firms. So this is different, you know, just, you know, you know, and, and both firms are like somewhat are considered somewhat technologically innovative in their time. So, like, think of these, you know, kind of economy leading like blue chip companies that are that like define the apex of the American economy in two different eras. One of them is constructed such that it's possible for a janitor to eventually become a senior executive. The other is constructed so as to make that impossible at all costs. Um, and I and and you know, I think Irwin's piece gets exactly at this question of employment classification as being um, a crucial constituent of that uh, uh, changing uh, uh, reality, um, I would say that the ability to contract everything out and yet control everything so minutely use a you know at a arms at a legally at arm's length but like economically you know at a very close uh uh distance and and with total control to the boss you know that is we have to understand the erosion of antitrust as being just as much a part of that as um the non enforcement of labor laws the erosion of of uh, enforcement of those and so on,
1: yeah yeah that's a <clears throat> That's a great um, dichotomy. Um, I wanted to also, I wanted to bring up the the welfare state. You in 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 a couple of these articles, you you've mentioned how, um, you know the 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 gig economy and and various sort of like antitrust, you know, tr- trying to uh, e- escape any kind of liability for f- uh, for for being responsible for one's you know employees. Uh, has materially harmed workers by sort of excluding them from, you know, like traditional welfare state stuff, which is often administered through, you know, through the employment relation. Um, but you've you've also written about how like the CARES Act, uh, part uh, partly helped with that, and then partly maybe uh, sort of entrenched the the bad uh, relationship. But you know, in general, the 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 CARES Act was like a pretty astounding piece. I mean, it seems mostly expired now, uh, but like it was a really interesting piece of legisla- legislation that that helped people out a lot and kind of revealed a lot of underlying you know deficiencies in the way that people in D.C. have done policy for the last like forty years. So, can you can you kind of go through like? the how the welfare state interacts with, you know, antitrust and and you know kind of kind of how the two can can complement each other and how they that might be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. So
2: we've been talking a lot about this kind of question of the legal employment relationship and why that matters so much for workers. And a big reason why it matters so much is exactly as you said, that so much of our welfare state is conditioned on Employment and so that's what you know. So in, in some sense this like category that was kind of um, You know, not the main focus of attention at the time of the new deal um, you know, th- this distinction the question of like employment independent contract I And mean, it is an important distinction as I was referring to in the antitrust cases uh, that we talked about earlier but like this idea that you know a lot matters for you economically on the question of whether you are legally an employee or not that that's not true to The New Deal era per se it's that's what's been layered on since and especially since we kind of adopted um, The backlash to the great society view that the problem with the welfare state is that it causes people not to work and inculcates a culture of poverty You know all of that is basically racist drivel um, But it's had an enormous impact on the kind of orthodoxy around uh, welfare policy, especially in DC Um, so As I've talked about, I don't know if I've talked about it in this podcast, certainly a couple of times on podcasts with Brunig um, and in some other writings, you know, there's this sort of mania for the earned income tax credit among DC policy. Wonk types, um, which is this uh, basically wage subsidy for people who are employed in market labor, and it doesn't help you if um, you're not employed in market labor. And arguably, it hurts you even if you are employed in market labor um, and you don't receive it because it, it by causing people to um, you know sort of have to uh, be employed in market labor in order to gain the benefit. It arguably depresses wages for people who uh, aren't uh, beneficiaries, so it reduces the market uh, wage. Basically, uh, you know, the Cares Act is kind of by chance the opposite of that so first of all you said that the cares act was like this revolutionary thing um it was that with respect to its unemployment insurance position, uh, provision so-called uh, pandemic unemployment compensation and then pandemic unemployment assistance we'll get to what those two things are in a second the rest of the CARES Act, um, for, you know, it also included the you know, sort of like one-off $1,200 check from the IRS, um, you know, for people earning, a bet. I guess it was like below 100000 a year. Um, and then there was like a ton of stuff that was basically an indefinite extension of a, ho- like, fire hose of money to um you know the economy's leading corporations via the federal reserve and the treasury um but i think especially the federal reserve so you're saying it's like mostly expired now well not the part that gave capital everything they wanted that part's not expired and that's exactly why the other part hasn't been renewed so there was a sense you know the kind of political uh uh, calculus that gave rise the cares act is like You know, we have like suddenly a pandemic has hit the economy. It's going to be temporary. Um, You know, so we need to like, we need something to tie people over. Let's juice up the unemployment insurance system, give people $1,200 checks and make sure all these businesses are able to uh, borrow, you know, that are facing, you know, huge sudden shortfalls. It's like, oh, but, you know, by the way, the last of those things, that'll be permanent. Um, the first of those things will be temporary because the pandemic is assumed to be temporary. And, oh, wait, the pandemic's not temporary, or at least it's less temporary than we thought it was going to be. Um, you know, those people are suddenly high and dry because capitalists already got everything they wanted. So it's like, we're in a pretty shitty situation, frankly, visa, for, you know, for pretty much all working people, but the stock market's doing great. Um Okay, so what did the CARES Act have for unemployment insurance and why is that such a challenge to kind of policy receive wisdom? It basically added this, so the PUC part, Pandemic Unemployment Compensation, added a lump sum $600 per week um, to uh, traditionally eligible workers for unemployment. So that's PUC. Um, so if you're eligible for unemployment, there's some state formula that says that's a function of what your wages were pre layoff. Um, you know, generally uh, as, as the lingo in unemployment insurance is replacement rate. So it's how much of your loss w- of your lost wages are quote replaced by unemployment insurance. You know, the average in the United States for people who are eligible is something like fifty percent, and like fifty percent of unemployed people aren't eligible or is not able to collect. It's you know a very like leaky sieve type system. The PUC. Element of the cares act up to that number by whatever the replacement rate was under state law plus six hundred dollars, which for a lot of workers is basically, uh, you know, a gigantic windfall relative to the shittiness of the jobs that they actually have to do Um, so many workers, especially in low-wage occupations, experienced Uh, you know, better pay when they were uh, receiving the PUC than they did in their jobs and that they're ever likely to again in their jobs. PUA was the version of that for the gig economy, basically. It was for workers who were not eligible for traditional unemployment insurance and many gig economy workers were disemployed by uh, the pandemic, this was a fully federal system that essentially gave them access to a temporary un- pool of unemployment insurance. Um, and the key thing there, so at the time I wrote a letter with Sen Jukta, whom I mentioned earlier, I wrote a letter to Congress about that they had basically done a kind of ex-post bailout of, the f- of all of the misclassification that... Uh, Gig economy firms have been doing for a decade now because they're saying oh, you know Uber has never paid a dime in unemployment insurance premiums for its workers and they become unemployed all the time Suddenly in this pandemic many of those workers are eligible for unemployment insurance. Thanks to PUA So that's great that they're you know able to subsist But instead of paying into it, you know Uber gets to skate for 10 years on its premiums and then the federal government pays for that so that was you know kind of uh, you know a a a uh, under the radar screen bailout of the gig economy employers. Anyway, now you know we're in this position where these things have been taken away, and what that has meant, you know. So, so the interesting thing that's come out in the economics research about the effect of the CARES Act and specifically these UI provisions is that you know the, the pandemic is and has been devastating to the low wage workforce. Huge extreme spike in unemployment. It's still very high. Um, you know, a lot of uh, of service workers have been uh, disemployed. But actually, poverty rates went down and earnings went up or income went up because their income was more than replaced by these temporary generous provisions that were not uh, conditional on showing up for work because they couldn't be conditional on showing up for work. The whole point of the pandemic is that people couldn't do their work, you know, now, uh, you know, and, and, you know, given that like that like in the midst of an economic catastrophe, we reduce the poverty rate. Um, You know, that like flies in the face of everything that we know about how the poverty, you know, the poverty rate usually goes up when there's an economic recession. And what we just found out is like, if you don't want that to happen, if you do want to reduce poverty, you have to enact these policies that aren't conditional on work. That's how you reduce policy. You give people money basically. And in this case, unemployed people are the people who are likely to be, to have low income, to be in poverty. So that's who you give money to. So now, you know, we're kind of, I mean, because of this political uh, uh, misjudgment that had, you know, giving capital everything it wanted while workers bailouts was temporary, um, you know, now it's like, okay, well, like, please give us something for workers. you know, I think the the view had been that, like, the election would be the leverage that, um, uh, you know, pro-worker interests would have over the federal political system. But that's not the case, actually, because uh, the outcomes of elections aren't terribly responsive to um, the the uh, well-being of the population, which is a big problem that we should probably do something about at some point. Uh <laughs> <laughs> um but but uh you know so now it's like okay well we're sort of like pleading for scraps the way that we have been for the last decades and everyone's reverted to you know basically versions of the eitc expansions that have been on their um you know to-do list for for a long time so it's like okay uh you know the wonks have got kind of gotten back control in control of the message and the asks and whatever and you know consequently the agenda has gotten shittier
0: <laughs> Never a good idea to give the wonks power. But no, no, look, so far, I just want to recap for the audience. Uh, we have number one left anchor Steinbaum uh, synthesis of antitrust and democratic socialism Two new idea breaking news. Let's make government responsive to the needs of the people. That's 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 like what we've. (laughs) So these are two important things that we're offering now. Um, But uh, but no, I think first of all, point point very well taken. That um, you know our favorite game about the Democrats is it malfeasance and and uh, or is it uh, malice? You know is it is it is it just you know bad politics or or is it just intentional? uh, You know slap in the face to the working people of this country and to the poor. Uh, So so yeah yeah point point well taken that the the corporations were were given. you know, indefinite lifeline. Um, And then I think they accidentally helped the poor and helped the working class, uh, probably because they didn't realize how low paying, uh, you know, jobs were out there. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. It was pretty clear at the time that like, there was just sort of no, I mean, I think the rhetoric in Washington is, is like somewhat responsive to you know, insofar as there's any responsiveness to workers, it's like, you know, uh, people who are not precariously employed. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that I, uh, you know, so, so it's like they don't, it's like any job is a good job or at least, or not, uh, I, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but it's like, you know, what we want to prevent is people losing their jobs. As long as they have their, jo- a job, they'll be fine. Um, and, you know, there's just... Uh, very, very little apprehension on the part of, like, the policy elite of, like, just how bad most jobs well, in but look, Marshall, are, the look, are. We all Russian know, worst
0: case scenario, as Mitt Romney said back in the day, if you're really in a tough situation, just sell your stocks if you have to. Just
2: <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, right, right. Just, yeah, dad, dad stock at American Motors or yeah. whatever, you know, and you can uh, afford rent. I back.
0: mean, it was a tough thing to have to do, but sometimes you gotta just bootstrap it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so... Well, you know now. Now Romney a resistance hero who's doing everything he
1: can to bring our Trump reign of terror to an end. What a wild he is. Thank thank God for him, honestly. Um, yeah, so so to uh, I guess to kind of like like tie tie that together a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> you know, like the welfare state is you know just like a critical lifeline. You know, and like the CARES Act shows you know that 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 4 decades of neoliberalism was all bullshit. Actually, we could solve poverty quickly and easily just by, you know, dumping money on people who don't have money. That's literally yep. it's that yep. easy. Exactly. Um but um I think, you know, the interesting thing to me uh, about like the this whole discussion about like market regulation and so on and so forth is that like I'm pretty convinced that The, uh, you know, insofar as your uh, the economy is based to some degree around, uh, you know, private businesses, um, you know, doing their thing, competition is a is a fairly useful tool if it's done right. And that means uh, competition that's that that happens, you know, through a sort of regulated process. Because you can have competition that just means trying to cheat and like drive the other guy out of business so you can seize more market share. You know, trying trying to force companies to compete on price and quality. And that means big government, basically. Um, you know, an, an example I've seen recently, uh, you know, uh, the the computer chip market for, for like uh, desktop PCs, that's like a pretty concentrated market. But there is competition there. Between AMD and Intel, and Intel's had like a big chunk of you know the marketplace for for many years. AMD's been sort of a laggard, but over the last like couple years, AMD like they basically just beat in, Intel's better better chips for cheaper, and suddenly Intel's on the back foot and they're doing all this stuff. They're retooling their their machine to trying to trying to sort of like exceed and like. That, I think, is a reasonable process so long as it's not, um, you know, like you don't you don't end up with a competition that takes place like, OK, we're shipping all of our, our uh, you know, all of our factories to uh, Tanzania and we're just going to pay everyone a dollar, you know, make them buy all their stuff in company script, that kind of competition. But, you know, and then also you could you could say, like, oh, we're going to set up something like the post office as explicitly a monopoly, but it's going to be a monopoly with a sort of government policy purpose. So like everybody has to get the same, uh, service for the same price, even if it's like ridiculously uneconomical to provide it in a certain location. And that's like a kind of different, that's like about quality government and how do you set up a agency with some sort of a spirit of core that like does a good job, um, but, like, I think the, you know, my sort of like fundamental takeaway, and maybe you can sort of quibble at this or qualify it, Marshall, is that, like, like the antitrust and, uh, you know, breaking up like, like full on monopolies and like forcing the businesses to compete decently and, uh, you know, the sort of like welfare state, um, you know, uh, social democratic vision, these things, like, they're two, they can be two great tastes that taste great together. And you know, like the, there's not necessarily a trade-off, and like one could sort of enable the other. I don't know. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean I think that uh you can have you know what might be called race to the top type of competition. I'm not exactly sure what's going on in the uh uh you know desktop computer chip market, but like branting what you the way you characterized it. Um or you can have race to the bottom competition which is basically about sort of chiseling out your company's own um uh regulatory arbitrage So like you're the one who gets to run a taxi company but not actually uh charge the regulated rate or you're the one who locates the The factory in Tanzania, so that you can pollute all you want and pay your workers like crap. Um, And then, you know, then you're in, you know, quote unquote competition with uh, uh, domestic producers, um, you know, who are then obviously uh, incentivized to do the same themselves. I I have tended to move away from the concept of competition, exactly, in some ways, exactly for the reason that you're saying it and for the, the reasons I just said it, which is that it is not, it doesn't really work as like we want more of it or we want less of it because there's different forms of it, as we were just. Saying, yeah, um, and um, you know, in particular, I have moved away from the concept of competition vis-a-vis uh, antitrust law. Like, I, I just don't agree now. Now, I have come to the view that I don't agree that the purpose of the antitrust laws is to promote competition. I think it is because you know, for the reason you're like the the world in which uh, you know a, a U.S. domestic manufacturer relocates overseas to take advantage of poor environmental and labor standards. Um, you know, that's like uh an act you know that, that that could be understood as an anti-competitive act vis-a-vis the workers um but like a pro-competitive act vis-a-vis the competitors potentially um and uh, so i don't think like it's you know a, a policy regime that gives work that gives companies the ability to undercut their own workers through the threat of outsourcing um isn't about promoting competition or impeding competition it's about you know who gets to decide in the economy who has power as Cedric has said who who to whom are coordination rights granted um and so my view is like antitrust has one disposition of the allocation of coordination rights or you know who gets to operate as a monopoly or as a dominant firm versus who is subjected to their domination which is to say subjected to competition under the current uh, way of doing things that would be workers so like a dominant employer you know, subjects workers to competition, so the workers have plenty of competition, and that's what reduces their labor standards. Um, and I think that is exactly what has kind of tripped up or created this false dichotomy between like anti-monopolism versus socialism, because from a workers' perspective, more competition is bad, um, because they that you know that's exactly what the economy already consists of. Whereas from uh, a uh, you know sort of corporate perspective, um, you know, the, exactly what characterizes the economy is a lack of competition. That is to say, you know, dominance, uh, not just in any one market, you know, where, where you know, many uh, major uh, industries are basically, a, you know, an oligopoly, if not a monopoly. And then, you know, vertical integration and vertical control, you know, that subjects disadvantaged actors to competitive forces and uh, insulates co- powerful actors from those competitive forces, and what we want is the erosion of the concentration of power, which is to say, to it, at least you know, through the mechanism of competition, that would be to subject powerful actors to competitive forces and protect unpowerful actors from them.
1: Well, well said. What? Um, <laughs> go ahead.
0: I was going to just do a, just at a left field kind of question about, because it seems like non-domination seems to be the maybe the principle um, that would kind of work through the synthesis of democratic socialism and the antitrust uh, kind of coalitional um, movement. And, and what do you think, how, how would you understand that principle uh, working with other ideas that the left is, is kind of fighting over, whether it's job guarantee or UBI? Um, you know, how, how do you think um, this overall leftist synthesis should think through what principles could help us kind of navigate these contests over which policies to to kind of fight over and, and propose as as the most important to push for.
2: Yeah, well, I absolutely do think that non-domination is the principle that's at play here, and that's why I support both UBI and a job guarantee, and right. I don't believe that there needs to be a uh, a clash between those two things. I mean, I have often thought, and if I you know had a vast research budget at my command, I would indeed. Uh, um, Uh, Commission this, you know, that there should be a sort of left pro-labor, like pro-low-wage labor agenda that consists of a UBI, like the CARES Act, except not just for unemployed people, but including them, a job guarantee, which is to say full employment, uh, you know, macroeconomic um, uh, commitment to full employment, um, and a $15 minimum wage, as well as uh, the enforcement of other labor standards like maximum hours and, uh, uh, you know, safe workplaces and that sort of thing. All of those things together, to me, form like the tripartite uh, or the 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 three legs of the stool of like a le, you know pro labor left agenda as against the EITC and basically anything that's conditional on uh supplying market labor for uh uh in order to uh receive benefits so like all three of the things i mentioned what characterizes them is uh rights uh and and entitlements accruing to the worker that's independent of any one employer and the, that's all of that is at odds with existing policy orthodoxy, for example the EITC. The other thing that I have written about a great deal is um, uh, student debt and labor market credentialization so I I interpret the rise of student debt as being basically the federal government's most ambitious labor market policy of the last few decades which is the idea that like oh if people aren't earning enough in the labor market they need more uh, human capital so they need more higher education and we'll lend them the money um, to get that higher education and then their earnings will go up. Like that has you know kind of spiraled out of control because people's earnings haven't gone up so they're left with a bigger pile of debt than they would have had otherwise and consequently aren't paying it off Um, but like all, the, the re- A big reason why the whole like student debt and higher education and human capital approach to labor market policy hasn't worked is because it also doesn't take into account employer power and the domination that uh, uh, bosses are able to exercise over workers in a capitalist economy. So what the effect of that, you know, student debt thing uh, uh, ha- In the labor market has been to basically shift the cost of training or uh, of being trained for your job or qualified for your job to individuals from employers or from you know the public higher education system. You know this this is just a transfer of those costs to the shoulders of the agent that's like least able to shoulder them.
0: That, That makes a lot of sense. Now and and Ryan, I don't know what you have up next, but. Um, you know, unless you have something different, I was going to say, let's contrast this beautiful vision of kind of a unified policy platform for, you know, the principle of non domination, uh, as against the would be Biden administration's, you know, possible policies, given the kind of advisors they're likely to have uh, in these areas.
2: Yeah, so it's not it's not good news, unfortunately. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who want you to t- who want to tell you that you know this is the most going to be the most progressive Democratic administration in history. Um, that like look at all this new thinking that's gone into uh, the Democratic Party's official platform and all of these new big ideas um, that the think tanks have been circulating. And um, you know I'm pretty pessimistic uh, about all of that. Uh, I mean for one you know so on antitrust you know the kind of the people that I mean it's been reported the people that they're consulting on antitrust policy are basically the past officials of the obama and clinton administrations which had uh, you know fairly uh, lax antitrust policies and all of those officials have since gone on to you know cash out in consulting for antitrust defendants or would-be defendants and then now they're being back, brought back in through the revolving door or will be brought back in through the revolving door if biden wins um you know so that's fairly uh, uh disappointing uh to, you know to see that playing out yet again the way it did under obama um and then uh you know i think on labor uh, you know i mean to, to kind of get back a little bit to what we were talking about uh, in terms of regulating the gig economy um, you know the sort of big idea in the sort of elite progressive left on labor policy since the end of the Obama administration. I guess it probably extends before that. Has been this idea of sectoral bargaining. Um, so that's basically that there should be sector-wide contracts negotiated between um, uh, labor unions and uh, all the employers in that sector, and that are binding on all the employers in that sector. So uh, the whole idea. I mean, it, it's you know sort of an admirable principle in it itself. Um, in that for like the exact thing that. That we, we were just talking about that like one uh employer figuring out how to charge lower uh or how to pay lower wages and thus initiating a race to the bottom is hard, way harder to do under a sectoral bargaining system where all employers in a given sector are uh, bound to uh, abide by um the negotiated terms of employment for the workers in that sector um and sectoral bargaining works very well in in, in many countries um the problem that i see developing however is that you know this sort of uh, elite progressive types are infatuated with their own new big idea and the gig economy is the part of the labor market that's like unregulated at this point or at least that's viewed to be unregulated and so they're like basically i have a hammer and the gig economy is my nail um so i'm going to try sexual bargaining on the gig economy um and uh, and it's particularly pernicious in one respect. So I don't. I, there, there's a world in which the using sectoral bargaining in the gig economy or anywhere would turn out to be great. The problem is what I just foresee playing out is the following deal, which is basically concede the question of legal employment status in exchange for the companies nominally agreeing to some sort of collectively bargained. Um, uh, a wage and uh, uh, labor standards kind of regime where you know the sort of the SAIU would come in a- as like the representative of all. Uh, Uber drivers or something like that or all workers in some aspect of the gig economy And they would negotiate a a, a Contract um, pertaining To all of those workers that would In theory be binding on on all the platforms um, In exchange for uh, Those uh, workers like Sort of giving up the fight over employment status I mean this, the, 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 the Democrats Really wanted to do this in, in, Or I should say the elite Democrat, like the, the governor And I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly The ins and outs, but like there, it was very clear that in California, so the way the AB5 played out in California California, the state Supreme Court had this ruling that uh, had the effect of implementing this new uh, test for employment status that would have employed uh, the gig economy workers when that Supreme Court ruling came out like there was just a lot of interest in creating a compromise that helped that like rolled back the question of employment status and ex- instead had some sort of, um, you know, like non employed collective bargaining. Um, uh, mechanism to protect gig workers, and I just and and it hasn't happened yet in California for good, you know, which is a good outcome. People who uh, uh, are uh, in favor of workers' uh, rights and status should be happy that that compromise was not reached. Um, and in, interestingly, my impression, and I'm not an insider in this, my impression has been that the AFL, that is, you know, the traditional bad old labor union federation that's considered to be the sticks in the mud, won't give up employment status because employment status is the key that unlocks. The potential for an, an, an forming an NLRA union. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's like they won't concede that and they're right not to concede that. Um, meanwhile, you've got the, you know, sort of like the new thinking, like, the, you know, the people that are, you know, that get invited to think tank confabs and the like, you know, coming up with new big ideas. And they're like, oh, let's try this new thing that's like not so... Bound up in the bad old new deal system. That's so antiquated and it's like been around for 70 years So that means it must be bad like let's do something shiny and new and that is like objectively just something in which workers have fewer rights um, and where uh, uh, You know, you could just imagine a sort of sectoral like I mean just to give a very concrete example, you know as a sort of cautionary tale um, so the city of Seattle uh, tried to pass a collective bargaining ordinance for gig economy workers um, when so in in that context basically the they had not the the uh, taxi or the you know the the uber drivers had had not uh, achieved employment status under Washington state law, and so the sort of second best option, the Seattle City council implemented a collective bargaining regime um for non employed workers and they were sued so this is the instance in which I'm talking about uh basically uber you know using antitrust laws against its own workers. They would say no, they were suing the city of Seattle, but basically Seattle lost an antitrust case. On the grounds that collective bargaining for non-employed workers violates the antitrust laws, um, and so they, having lost that antitrust case, they reach some sort of compromise, um, which gives up employment status and gives up and basically gives up the collective bargaining ordinance. They they they're not. I think the way it's going to work is that the you know the would be union is not going to be able to bargain over wages for uh, for workers. Um, instead, there's going to be basically a a uh, A sort of like minimum wage or minimum pay ordinance um, that goes through the sort of Seattle taxi uh, 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 regulation mechanism. So that's what there is in New York City. They moved to this uh, system where there's basically minimum pay for ride-sharing drivers in New York implemented by the Taxi and Limousine Commission. What Seattle's doing is uh, equivalent to that um, and I think it's better than the status quo, but it is not, you know, the reason why it's a cautionary tale is because Seattle explicitly gave up the thing that was the main point of the ordinance, which was collectively bargaining pay for uh, ride-sharing drivers. And I just see some sort of, you know, bad outcome that like federal policy under, federal labor policy to deal with the gig economy under the Biden administration becomes a sort of half-baked version of sectoral bargaining that gives up employment status um, in exchange for, you know, some thing that like will only ever be even like have a prayer, uh, of being tried in blue states, um, and ends up, you know, not really protecting workers nearly as much as actual employment status would. Um, and you know, I just, I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a grave, um, a threat that, you know, we progressives should be vigilant towards and, and, uh, recognize when that, uh, that threat is on the horizon, and when when you know if if that's presented to us as like, oh look at these like uh, uh, very ambitious labor reforms of the extremely progressive Biden administration, like no. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. Like it, instead of viewing it as a victory for the workers, which is I'm sure how they'll spin it. It's like, we're we're going to distract you with this minimal floor of, of like basic wages or, or some minimal concessions to the needs of workers in order to entrench the, the asymmet- asymmetrical power of, of capital over labor. Right. Yeah. I mean,
2: and you, there was like a, a, an op-ed from the CEO of Uber a few weeks ago uh, that was like, basically like don't make us do A B five, don't make us classify them as employees. Instead we'll like contribute a thousand dollars a year to their health insurance, like so they can buy health insurance on the Obamacare exchange. It's like you could imagine that going from like Uber op ed Uber CEO op-ed to the policy of a bad Democratic presidential administration. You know, I should say I think it's the case that the Democratic uh Platform commits them to quote federal AB 5, uh, which is to say, you know, changing the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act to abide by the ABC test, which is the more stringent test that means that more workers count as employees. You know, that would be great. My impression is that most people think the politics of it aren't there. That would require an act of Congress. And that, like, the same way that card check, you know, that they had like, you know, more than 60 members of the Senate had said that they supported card check until it actually became. Possible for that to happen, and then they were like, "Oh no, 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 absolutely not." Um, you know, I think I, you know, I, I just feel like that's what's going to happen with federal AB five—that is, you know, robust employment uh, status for gig workers throughout the country, and that's really where, I mean, vis-a-vis the gig economy, that's where we should look first. As much as I think it's very important to bring an antitrust case against the platforms for vertical restraints, um, you know, the whole point of that case would be to get them to agree to employment status because that's how they would protect themselves from that, uh, from that antitrust liability.
1: Yeah. Well, we're we're still waiting for a sort of Robert Wagner of the modern age, I guess. Um, I.
2: Well, let's 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 be historically faithful to the idea that as great a legislator as Robert Wagner was, um, and I would just point out that it was his economist advisor Leon Kaiserling who actually wrote the, the uh, National Labor Relations <laughs> Act. Um, the,
0: the Marshall Steinbaum of his day, if you will. <laughs> Well I, I don't say that. Okay, so so that that
2: opens up a whole can of worms because Kaiserling eventually was gone after by the loyalty boards during the Truman administration and basically became a neo-lib of that era to protect himself from those prosecutions because they were like, "Oh, he's a dirty socialist. He wrote the National Labor <laughs> Relations Act." And he totally kind of retreated and especially so his wife was also a pretty prominent sort of progressive activist um, Both of them basically were sort of forced not to be socialists anymore in order to be like politically acceptable um, After the late 40s. Uh, so hopefully I will not follow that path in my career But anyways, never. Get back I never I would never believe
0: it. You know, Marshall, right? you'll never betray us. No, you are no Judas <laughs> Um
2: uh, I should just say what neoliberalism meant in that era was basically, like, defense Keynesianism. Um, so, like, basically the the sort of right-wing position or centrist position that he retreated to would be considered, like, the left edge of acceptable <laughs> economic policy advice now. Um Anyway, so you know, Robert Wagner or would be Robert Wagner is not going to save us. I don't know if anybody will or if anything could, but it's not going to be a great single politician that sort of leads us no. to the promised land.
1: Um, you know, and I
0: think are, that Marshall, uh, are you saying that we I mean, we it, 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 are the ones we've been waiting for? Is that the point? <laughs> <laughs>
1: you need well, yeah. I mean, he was just a sort of cat's paw for big labor, right? And and but but he was sensible enough and had the expertise enough to to actually serve that purpose. Yeah, but you know, as
2: yeah, yeah, I mean, but but I think I think the historians of the New Deal would say, you know, it's the social movement of the of the union movement of the, of the workers' movement in this country that created the National Labor Relations Act and not the reverse. Right. Now, I would say it's a little it's a little more chicken and eggish than that. Yeah, um, you know, the sort of the the unionization movement that grew up in the context of the New Deal, like definitely responded to the earlier National Industrial Recovery Act that gave some protections to unions that hadn't already been there. And also, you know, just like the same way that, um, you know, the key instrument of emancipation during the Civil War was just the presence of the Union Army and this like contrary power to um, to the slaveholders, you know, as in the New Deal, like the fact that there was a federal administration that was at least viewed as, you know, if not, um, you know, socialist in itself and like, uh, if not itself you know basically a syndicalist movement or something like friendly to the interests of workers and consequently that you know gave great uh, uh impetus to on the ground workers movements to organize their workplaces and to engage in tactics that you know would just be foolish if you didn't think that like oh there's somebody in power who might be listening yeah
1: yeah but i've got a have gotta sign off for the for the day but i think that's a good place to leave it uh hanging you know we'll We will explore the the Steinbaum left anchor synthesis in, in, in further episodes, perhaps, but I think we've made some pretty good progress there. Um, you know, and that but I, I hope so. I hope
2: people will look back to this podcast as being the, the, uh, the beginning of the next yeah, phase. I mean, you know, we've
1: is. pretty much done the, the hard work, the important work of explaining That's what true. needs to happen and now someone just needs to go do it. <laughs> so how hard can it be? Well, thanks. Ryan.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Everyone. You're welcome. Yeah. And th- thank you, Marshall. You've, you've been wonderful. Do you right. have a last comment to leave the the audience with? Um,
2: no, I uh, just, uh, you know, this is a tough time. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think we have, you know, as you say, I mean, it, you know, it's it's funny to say like, oh, well, we figured out everything that needs to be done. But, you know, there has been a great advance, I think, in, in terms of like progressive thinking on the economy, at least in the time that I've been, you know, sort of like doing this professionally. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that is something to give hope right. I hope I hope it is at least it's yeah. the only thing I have <laughs>
0: no and yeah look, ten tens tens of millions of people that are radicalized in in, in some sense at least uh, towards social democracy uh, you know in, in electoral politics let alone you know the growth of organizations um, like DSA it, it is something to um, to hold on to especially young people in this country have are polling as uh, you know very lefty and, and understand that the crises and and what what's required is you know it's the gerontocracy and the oligarchy that needs to be defeated and and they're going to die soon so we can at least you know do what we can uh to expedite that not necessarily their deaths but the the overtaking of their power so
1: yeah yeah good intellectuals like a you know like a, a contractor a plumber you know it's like somebody you hired to do a job it's like once you got everything lined up you just need someone to translate this bill into legal language boom yeah and Hopefully, you know, Marshall, you can be up there s- uh, drafting the next uh, uh, Labor Standards Antitrust Act. So, <laughs> well, we got we
2: got a few more uh, years in the wilderness before that <laughs> happens. But uh, hopefully, hopefully, at some point.
1: But yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you next time.